turn to Isaiah 40. And we'll get settled down here. Vance says, simmer. Bud has the Bibles. Isaiah 40, we're back. We're back in Isaiah. It's good to be back in Isaiah. And no sooner are we back in Isaiah than somebody asked me on Sunday, so what's next? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> simmer. <laughs> got, got, got 27 chapters left. That's a half a year. Easily. 27 chapters divided by, yeah, that's half a year, not counting sick, not counting vacation, not counting occasionally slowing down and taking more than one week for a chapter. Isaiah 53, we're not going to do that in a week. Isaiah 40, eh, we're not going to do that in a week either. But six months, seven months, give or take, it'll be summer by then. So what do we do? Do we take a break? Does Rob do another series? Pastor friend of mine, every year, not, not just once, but every year consistently, their church drops out of wherever they are and they do psalms. It's the, the psalms of summer is, is their thing. I don't know. I think, I think the next book that we'll take after Isaiah is probably Jeremiah. As far as I know, God hasn't told me otherwise. He's got a long ways to tell me before... Uh, he needs to, but until he tells me otherwise, I think we're all, all major prophets all the time on Wednesday nights. Fun fact, I've never taught Ezekiel all the way through. I've taught portions of it, obviously. But I haven't taught Ezekiel to beginning to end. And it's weird, and it's good. Looking forward to it. Sundays is actually a more interesting question. As we truck our way through the life of Paul, when we finish Romans, we're done with the long books. Done with Romans, probably also by next summer. Now, there's still six Pauline epistles left. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. we got the prison epistles. we got the pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy and Titus. So it's not like we're wrapping Paul up anytime soon. My pastor took two years to teach through Ephesians. Oh, so that's where you get it. <laughs> that's where it comes from. But after Romans, still 25? You can check my math on your own. I think it's like 25 chapters of good Pauline writing left to chew on. After that, though, after that, things get interesting because we're almost done with the New Testament. Asterix, James. I haven't taught James. But in the last few years, Rob has taught through James and Pastor James has taught through James. So I'm not in a hurry to, to do that. Where do we go on, on, on Sunday mornings? Do we go Pentateuch? Because if we're, if we're doing major prophets on Wednesday, that's the other big chunk of the Old Testament, uh, uh, except for Psalms. A lot of fun to be had in the Pentateuch. But that has us all Old Testament all the time, Sundays and Wednesdays. Do we do a gospel? We did the gospels collectively when we went through life of Christ, but that's not the same as going through a gospel. Do we the things to pray about? Part of me wants to teach Revelation again. Because I would do it, because I would do it really differently than I did 10 years ago. Things to pray about. Anyway, we've got Isaiah in front of us and we're burning daylight. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. You know, Hector prayed, I need to pray. Lord, as we look to your word, would you anoint it? 
Would you speak to us through it? Would you redeem the time? We can't outgive you, God. As we give you this Wednesday evening, would you return a double blessing upon us? We ask in your name, amen. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Last week in our review of Isaiah, we did a chapter 1 through 39 recap. We said that that section was written to people living in the shadow of the Assyrian Empire. And the major event in history, prophecy, but prophecy is history written in advance, the major event looming large in Isaiah's windshield was the coming attack, the attack in 701 by the Assyrians. The campaign, the carnage as the Assyrian army ripped through Judah. And the impending attack that God turned back on Jerusalem, all of which was supposed to be chastening. Not punishment to destroy, punishment to correct. And it did that for a while. If we think back to the historical books, God's chastening served its purpose. For a time, Judah had it figured out. Judah was doing it right, especially under Josiah, one of the greatest revivals Israel has ever known, Judah. But as we talked last week, we, we know eventually Judah returned to her old ways, her idolatry, her arrogance, her selfishness. And so God allows the Babylonian Empire to be the instrument of his judgment, of his further correction. He put a sharper point on it. The Babylonian Empire conquers first Assyria, then Egypt, and in conquering them was content to have Judah as a client state, as a vassal state for a time. Then Jehoiakim rebels in 2 Kings 24, and Babylon levels the city, levels the walls, levels the temple, Look back in chapter 39, fulfills the prophecy that Isaiah spoke, the day is coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away. Some of your sons will descend from you who you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The Babylon captivity, in other words. And it's looking forward into that captivity, looking forward from Isaiah's perspective, looking forward almost a hundred years in time from where Isaiah was standing, that God, through Isaiah, speaks words of encouragement to those descendants, to that generation following the generation, those carried off. We don't know exactly when Isaiah spoke these words. We don't know the exact circumstances surrounding the giving of this prophecy. Unlike the first part of this book, there are no narrative clues. There are no people or places of, or events that help us nail down the time frame. But we know the occasion that prompts this 27-chapter encouragement. It's God's people being carried off to Babylon. That was a typical Babylonian strategy, to dilute the identity of its conquered people send a bunch of, of foreigners into a conquered land and take the, the, the indigenous people out of the land, homogenize the people of the Babylonian Empire, rob them of their national, their cultural identity. That's what they did 
in, in Egypt, that's what they did in Assyria, and that's what they did in Judah. And we can understand how God's people, the Jewish people, carried off, trying to preserve their identity, trying to maintain their culture in a faraway place in Babylon, could feel like God was far away. Maybe even that God had given up on them. God was done with them. We could excuse them if they felt like God had forsaken them forever, being where they were in the state that they were in. Because they knew why they were there. The prophets had spoken of it for centuries. They knew from the days of Moses that if they rebelled continually against God and refused to repent, that God would allow this to happen. Moses said this was what was going to happen. They finally, I'm sure, thought to themselves, we've gone too far. We've broken something that can't be fixed. We've crossed a line that can't be uncrossed. Except God fixes broken things. And that's going to be Isaiah's message in these 27 chapters. God fixes broken things. If God wanted to destroy you, you'd be destroyed. Even in judgment, God remembers mercy. I remember one of my earliest childhood memories. I must have been like three or four. One of my earliest childhood memories, my dad, I don't know why, we were, we were down near, out, out in farm country where, my, where some of my relatives lived, dropped me off with relatives I've never met before. I figured, you know, much later I figured out who it was because I remembered the story and I asked Dad, why did you do that? And at the time, I, I lost it. Because here I am, and, 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 and I had been naughty. I had been bad that afternoon. And I knew I'd been bad. My dad and I had, been, had words about it. Now him dropping me off at the relative's house was completely unrelated. He had to go somewhere and do something and he needed someplace to park me. I didn't know them. And I was convinced I was never going to see my family again. I was convinced <laughs> Dad would take me, take me out to live on a farm. <laughs> when he picked me up, and I had been wailing for two hours or however long I was there, he didn't understand why I was upset. He looked at me and said, of course I was coming back for you. What, are you dumb? God, a little bit more tender than my father, because God is both father and mother. He has both of those qualities, right? Tenderly, says verse 1, comfort. Yes, comfort my people. Tell my people it's going to be okay. The Hebrew, if you, if, you, if you scratch hard at the Hebrew, the root word has to do with breathing deeply. You ever encourage a small child or a not small child? Okay, take, take a deep breath. Just breathe. Breathe with me. If there's someone in your life that suffers from anxiety, you've probably done this. Look, match my breathing. In through the nose, out through the mouth. Let's count three in, three out. Three in, four out. It's that kind of thing that God is conveying. Keep breathing. You're still alive. If I wanted you dead, you'd be dead. But that's not my goal. My goal is for you to seek my forgiveness. My goal is for you to find atonement. My goal is for us to be us again. Where does atonement come from? Just, just 
hold, yeah, hold, hold that answer there. Hold that thought there. And let's keep reading. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her. Cry out what to her? Three things. That her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. Better translation, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Convey my heart to Jerusalem. What's God's heart for Jerusalem? Let Jerusalem know I want her back. This is almost the language of courtship. If you do a word study, if you, if you dig into this, it's almost those times that God woos. I want Jerusalem back. I want my people back. Tell them that they get to come back. Tell her that the warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. That should sound familiar. What is that echo that we've read together recently? That's Romans 5, isn't it? You can flip over with me or, or just listen. Romans 5, what does God say to us? Therefore, having been justified by faith, Romans 5, 1, we have peace with God. The warfare is ended. Keep going in Romans. Go down to verse 10 of chapter 5. For if we, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Our iniquity has been pardoned. And same chapter, Romans 5, if you go down to verse 17, for if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, this was last weekend, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ once uh, much more. In, in giving us that, back to Isaiah 40, God through Isaiah, the Holy Spirit, has given us an outline for the rest of the book. Chapters 40 to 48 are going to talk about how Jerusalem, Israel's warfare with God has ended. Chapters 49 to 57 are going to talk about how Israel's iniquity has been pardoned. And chapters 58 to 66 are going to talk about two things. One, how Israel received double judgment. Why double judgment? Because Israel, God speaks of Israel as his firstborn. That's Exodus 4.22. And remember, the firstborn receives double inheritance. Israel, as is God's firstborn, received double punishment. There's some parallels in Hebrews there as well. If you, if you scroll back to, to I'm sorry, uh, parallels in Romans chapter 2, if you want to track that down. But also double blessing. Think about Job, that which God took, he replaced by a multiple. So that's a preview that God has just given us of the remainder of this book of Isaiah. But let's keep going or we won't get anywhere tonight. This chapter, this section begins with the voice of God. Comfort my people, speak comfort to Jerusalem. It continues with a response. What is the right response 
to these amazing words, this amazing exhortation that God has just spoken. The response that God suggests that the Holy Spirit is looking for begins in verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Crying what? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's a familiar verse. All four Gospels quote that verse and quote it in reference to who? John the Baptist. Now the language, the idiom there, refers to a custom in the ancient world when a king would travel, when a king would visit a foreign land or a part of his country that he didn't habitually visit, one of two things would happen. People would either cut a brand new road for him to travel on, never been, never been traveled on before, no, no ruts, no washouts, or they would repair an existing road. They'd resurface it in effect, smooth it, take out all the potholes and all of the obstacles and the puddles, make it fit for a king to travel. John is, is saying, make straight the highway, make it fit for a king. But when he says that, he's not saying, get out your shovels and rakes. He's not talking about axe work and, and roller work. He's talking about repentance. He's talking about, hey, repair the potholes in your heart. Fill those ruts in your soul. Get ready for the Lamb of God who's coming to take away the sin of the world. John preached repentance, right? Why? Because the forgiveness that Jesus offers is of no effect without repentance. The scribes and the Pharisees, what was their problem? They didn't think they had anything to repent of. They didn't think they needed a Savior. So John's words fall on deaf ears. That's significant. Because that turns what we just read, Isaiah 40, verse 3, from a prophecy whose scope could have been a few centuries. Isaiah is speaking these words maybe 600 years before Jesus is born. It transforms that prophecy from a prophecy of a few centuries to a prophecy of many, many centuries. How so? Israel didn't recognize her king, despite John's exhortation, despite the voice in the person of John crying from the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Israel didn't recognize her Messiah. Her leaders refused to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah, refused to acknowledge that Jesus was the one spoken of of verse 3. Even the disciples had a hard time wrapping their heads around it, didn't they? In Malachi... Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6, the last prophecy before the 400 years of silence, we read, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and deadful day of the Lord, and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And the disciples were familiar with that. Everyone was. So they didn't understand even as they stood with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, how does this work? Because we haven't seen Elijah. Mark chapter 9. 
I'm going slow enough so you can flip there if you want. Or you can just listen. Mark chapter 9. As, as, as Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration. No, actually, it was right after. They came down from the mountain, verse 9. And Jesus commanded them, don't talk to people about this. So they kept the word to themselves, questioning, Mark 9, verse 10, what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how it is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of them. See, John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. And if Israel had recognized her Messiah, he would have fulfilled Isaiah 40, verse 3. But it didn't turn out that way. And so instead, Jesus says, yeah, we're going to have to do this again. And another Elijah is going to come who will fulfill Isaiah 40, verse 3, who will fulfill Malachi 4, verses 4 and 5. See how it pushes the fulfillment of that off. We're still waiting for it today. When Jesus returns, his return will be heralded by the Elijah, one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. And then the world will see, back in Isaiah 40, verse 4, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight and rough places smooth. Speaking of the geological upheaval, the topographical transformation that happens in the Middle East when Jesus returns. What else happens when Jesus returns? The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What does that remind us of? Sounds a lot like Matthew 24. Sounds a lot like in verse 29 Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The entire world will see what Peter, James, and John got to see that day the Shekinah glory in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that the Holy Spirit says through Isaiah. That's the first thing that should, should follow. That should be the first response to this, these words of comfort that I'm speaking to you. Comfort my people. Tell them that. The war is over. Their iniquity is pardoned. They've, they've suffered punishment and punishment times two. And they're going to be rewarded times two. What should their response be? They should make a highway. They should tell each other the king is coming. And verse six, they should cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? 
this connects back to verses one and two. Because now there's pushback. God is saying these marvelous things. Truth is too great to utter. Israel's sin is, is, is going to be forgiven. Her iniquity is, 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 is paid for. Relationship is going to be restored, but there's pushback. Cry out, but why, what should I cry? Cry out, cry out what? Cry out why? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Much like we've read in Romans, Paul responding to an imaginary reader who's raising objections, who's debating with them from afar. Hard to tell if this is Isaiah objecting or if this is Israel objecting. If God is anticipating this is, this is how Israel in exile is going to respond. I tend to think it's Israel because Isaiah has, has heard harder things than this from God and said, okay. So I tend to think that this is God anticipating. Here's, here's Israel's first response. Israel's first response when you start telling them this, oh, it's just going to be like it was before. It's going to be better for a while, then it's going to be bad again. You know, the grass springs up and it's green for a while, and then it gets brown, especially in Kansas. Even in Isaiah's day, you know, there were, there were revivals. There's revival under Uzziah. Things get better under Hezekiah. There are good kings, and where there's good kings, there's repentance. And where there's repentance, there's prosperity, and things are good for a while. But after, after Uzziah comes Ahaz, and things are bad. After Hezekiah comes Manasseh, and things are really bad. Prophetically, the people in revival, Isaiah had no way of knowing this apart from God the Holy Spirit, but the people that he was speaking to a hundred years in the future would look back at Josiah, the last great king of, of Judah, and arguably the greatest revival that Israel ever experienced, and they would say, yeah, here we are. There was tremendous revival under Josiah, but look at us. <laughs> But there's an answer to that objection. Just like Paul answers his imaginary debate partner in Rome, God's got an answer. The grass withers. That's true. The flower fades. It does. But the word of our God stands forever. God has an answer to the objection, whether it's coming from Isaiah or Israel. He says, yeah, empires rise and fall. Movie stars come and go. Championships are won and lost. Who won the Super Bowl three years ago? Yeah, yeah you know, last year or the year before, three years? Who won best, best, best motion picture three years ago or best actor? Who was Time's Person of the Year three years ago? People come and go. Their stocks rise and fall. People... And the things, the things that people do, the things that people make, the things that people are in this world are passing. Our accomplishments, however significant they seem in the moment, they're passing. What's not passing ever is the word of God. And that takes us back to Matthew again. Matthew 24, just below where we read a moment ago, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. 
which in context, Isaiah is saying, God is saying through Isaiah, the words I'm speaking will come to pass. My word will not pass away, and the promises in my word, the promises of my word, I will keep. The restoration of Israel will happen. You can comfort the people. You won't be wasting your breath. I'm in control. I can do this. I will do this. And so the exhortation comes again, verse 9. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Some commentators read this as God directing Isaiah. Isaiah, buck up. Fulfill your calling. Do your ministry. Do your job, yo. <laughs> and I can see how you get there. Verse 9, you that bring good tidings, you that tell good tidings, you that speak good tidings. Good tidings is a weird phrase. It could just as easily be translated, you who bring the good news to Zion. And if we go there, it's one small step to you who preach the gospel to Zion. And once we go there, once we see that, we have to get panoramic with this. And we have to ask ourselves, there must be a longer-term fulfillment here. And I think there is. I think that this speaks of the evangelism that takes place in the tribulation. If Israel's wholehearted response, the response that God asks for, the response that he suggests and prescribes in verse 3, if that's delayed to Christ's second coming, then I think verse 9, that exhortation, likewise precedes Christ's second coming. When Israel is again persecuted, when, Isaiah, when Israel again has reason to believe that God has abandoned them, forgotten them, forsaken them, what does God do? Seals 144,000 Jewish evangelists and says, go preach the gospel. Nothing can hurt you. No one can touch you. You're under my hand of protection. Go preach the gospel. Preach it loudly, preach it fearlessly. I wonder, too, that's, a, that's Revelation 7. I wonder, too, if verse 9 doesn't also anticipate the two witnesses. Revelation 11, we can argue who the second one is. Put a gun to my head, I'm going to say Moses. If you're going to say, no, it's Enoch, no, it's Enoch, okay. You might be right. I don't think you are, but I love you. But we got to agree that one of them is, is Elijah, don't we? we got to agree that one of them is the voice crying out of the wilderness, the one spoken of in Malachi 4, who's going to be commissioned, prepare the way of the Lord. Am I reaching for an end times interpretation? I don't think so, because verse 10, we see the Lord's return. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him. Pause. Who's that? His reward is with them. What does that refer to? The saints, the church, you and me. 
Just, just, just take a week and meditate on that sometime. We are his exceedingly great reward. And then take another week. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's wow, right? But the second coming, behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Now this, is, this gets chewy. Because reward with him, work before him, it's easy, and a lot of commentators will say, well, that's, that's the sheep and goat judgment. His reward is with him, and then he gathers up the, the tribulation saints, the surviving tribulation saints, and he gathers up the believing remnant of Israel, and they're with him. But his work, the justice that he needs to administrate to the unbelieving world, to the nations, is before him. And that might be right. That might be right. But that word work can also be translated recompense. At that point, they're almost synonyms. And it's almost his reward, the church is with him, but his recompense, Israel, is before him. And the nations, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's another issue. I, I, I'll be honest, I'm not sure how to parse it, I just know that all three of those things happen. Jesus returns with the church, judges the nations, gathers Israel unto himself, rules over them with a strong hand, verse 10. Jesus doesn't stop being strong after he's judged the nations. As we get into the passages that have to do with the millennial kingdom, he rules with a strong hand. And yet with a shepherd's heart, Verse 11, he'll feed his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Zechariah, speaking of Judah, bemoaned the fact that God's people were like what? Sheep without a shepherd. Zechariah 10, verse 2 and 3. No more. Because the shepherd has come. And as we wrap up, this is the part where we have to observe, where we have to acknowledge the things that will be true in the second coming and in the millennial kingdom can be true for you and me. If you're new to Wednesday nights, if you're new to Patrick and Prophecy, it's one of, one of our through lines here on Wednesdays. It's, it's part of our hermeneutic. The kingdom is coming. Jesus is going to return to set up a physical, literal, thousand-year kingdom. But what did Jesus say when he was walking the shores of Galilee? He said, the kingdom of God is among you. And that's our basis for looking at what will be true for Israel and for the world in a physical kingdom administrated by Jesus and saying those things can be true, should be true, for you and I right now, spiritually. Because doesn't Jesus say to us in Matthew 11, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's pictured there? It's what we just read in Isaiah 40, verse 11. It's Jesus saying, come to me, let me be your shepherd. Now, if we work this parallel backward, if we work back up into the verse 
with it, we have to ask ourselves, what other parallels are lurking there? What other applications can we find for our lives? And it's not hard. Because our ministry is very much the ministry that God is prescribing for his people. Prepare the way of the Lord. Isn't that the message that we've been given? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent of your sin and self-righteousness. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the message that's been entrusted to us. And to the answer that we get so often, what's the point? The grass withers, the flower fades. What's the point? The world is the world. Our answer is likewise, yeah, but the word of God stands forever. The world is going to pass. But God's word will come to pass. The gospel isn't just an idea to be entertained or even a truth to be believed. It's a command to be obeyed. Two things, actually, in this world that are eternal. Isaiah 40 speaks of one of them. Two things that are eternal. The first, the word of God. The second, the human soul. Both of those things endure forever. Our mission today is to make sure as many souls as possible have the right address. Our mission today, like the 144,000, like the, the two witnesses, is to declare what we read in Isaiah 40, what we read in Romans 5. The war is over. The iniquity has been paid. Punishment has been poured out on Jesus in our place. And all that's standing between you and reward is just believing. Today, we're the ones who bring the good tidings, the good news, the gospel. Today, we're the ones who need to lift our voice and not be afraid and invite people. Behold God. He's there. He'll reveal himself to anyone who's who's willing to see. But don't miss verse 11 either as we wrap up. Today we're the ones who get to declare, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we're also the ones who get to say, behold the shepherd. We're also the ones, verse 11, who get to be fed and led and comforted and carried. If that's the relationship Israel gets to enjoy in the millennial kingdom, and Isaiah just said that it is. That's the relationship we get to enjoy today. I, somebody said, I heard, I think it was on True FM this week, the ministry of the church is to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. I like that. I've never heard it, but I'm definitely going to use it again. The mission of the church is to disturb the comfortable and to comfort the disturbed. And that mission doesn't stop when people say yes to Jesus. That mission doesn't stop when people become Christ followers. I mean, use Israel as an example. If anything, it was more true. When Jesus returned, he was more a shepherd to Israel than he'd ever been. 
more a shepherd to the 144,000, more a shepherd to the tribulation saints, more a shepherd to the believing remnant. Something I know I heard on True FM, and, and I need to go back and figure out who it was because the first thing I need to do is I need to go back and listen to the message in context and make sure I was hearing it right. But I thought I heard a pastor talking about Psalm 23 as anticipating heaven. And I, and, and I, I know how most people get there because we read it at funerals. And so there's a sloppy sort of when God brings us home, those are the green pastures, those are the still waters. But if you look at Psalm 23, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about Jesus shepherding us. Where does he shepherd us? He shepherds us here. In heaven, we don't need a shepherd. In heaven, we have a bridegroom. We need a shepherd here. And it's here that Jesus leads us to green pastures and before still waters and restores our soul and leads us in paths of righteousness. It's here that we're reminded we don't have to fear evil. Not heaven, there's no evil in heaven. It's here that we embrace his rod and his staff, his discipline. There's no discipline in heaven. It's here that he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. There aren't any enemies in heaven. It's here that he anoints our head with oil. It's here that the Holy Spirit comes upon us and empowers us. And it's here that our cup overflows the way we talked about on Sunday with grace, with a good theme, with the gospel. Everyone in heaven is a believer. It's here that we get to be encouraged by God and strengthened by God and anointed by God, chastened by God, yes, but built up by God to be servants of God and ambassadors of God. With our shepherd walking with us, holding us, comforting us, encouraging us, carrying us when we need it. The promise that's awaiting Israel is available to us tonight. And Jesus, we ask, would you be our shepherd? And just as Israel needed some chasing and needed some correcting before they were willing, Jesus, where our pride is pushing back, where our selfishness is asserting itself, where our self-righteousness is refusing to yield. In your grace and mercy, would you come against us? The shepherd knows what the sheep needs to be led, to be smacked, sometimes to be crippled and carried. Jesus, be our shepherd, that we might be the sheep that follow hard after you.